0: So as a teacher, I come to work every day with uh, very detailed lesson plans, but over the years, I've learned that you have to be flexible. I have lots of detours in the day, be it that my kids have a bloody nose, or they lose a tooth, or they forgot their lunch. So many times as a teacher, I can't be so structured that I'm not able to meet what they need, um, because then they won't learn. first experience in being uh, flexible and changing plans was my first year of teaching when a little girl got sick and threw up in my shoes. And at that point I realized very quickly that I wasn't going to get to the math lesson that day. I'm blessed to have 32 first graders in my classroom, and that means I have 32 personalities, and I don't always know how each child's going to react to what I teach or what we discuss. All of those things bring such excitement and fear and sadness in my little students, and that comes into these four walls that I get to deal with each day. It is difficult to be flexible, and um, it's not something that you can be taught. However, that flexibility and that opportunity to use that improv comes in, and you have a choice to use it, but you do have to keep your eyes open for those teachable moments, and you take that opportunity to learn and grow from.
1: I love Lynette, um, have known her for a while, love the fact that she's out there in our schools and teaching. Uh, I don't know if I've ever shared this, but um, I can relate a little bit more to this video than the musician or the surfer from the last couple weeks. I actually was going to go into teaching, went in to get my teaching credential, thought I was going to be in the classroom, spent a bunch of time in an inner city school in San Jose, had a bunch of kiddos. One day I was standing in front of a whole class of fourth graders. I was actually offered a job, a full-time teaching job, before I had my credential at this school. And I'm looking at these fourth graders going, this is not working for me. I'm not doing so well with it. So, man, teachers, you guys are amazing. I've had three teachers change my life over the years, one in elementary school, one in middle school, and one in high school. And they have to improvise. And that's what we're talking about these days. Uh, It's all about improvising. And one of the things that we're learning is that when we learn something and we're able to kind of hone in on a craft. We are actually freed up to create, and teachers are freed up to kind of ad-lib and move in directions that they didn't know that they were going to move in. You know, you never know when there's going to be throw-up in shoes, and you have to adjust your day and your time. And we realize that, you know, they can be freed up, and when teachers love their students like Lynette loves hers, they're able to create beauty in their lives. And so one of the things that we're saying is that that's actually possible with God, that we can walk with God and that we can have this relationship with the Holy Spirit that is alive. And as we learn the music of the Scriptures and as we participate and live that out in our lives, this story that God is writing in the world today, a story of faith and and hope and love, and we participate with Him that we can actually improvise with the Holy Spirit and we can make adjustments in our lives, and when we do... We have the ability to bring beauty to the world today. And so we're reading 28 chapters in 28 days. We're going through this book called the Book of Acts. It's one of the earliest uh, accounts of the early church. And we're looking back. How did these early Christians do it? And on the weekends, we're spending some time looking at five key passages from the Book of Acts. We can't go through the whole thing, but we can land on these pivotal points in the history of the church. And all of these points are just moments in time. But they're defining moments in time for the early church. There are moments that shaped them and opened them up to new possibilities. And we have those moments still today, believe it or not. We have those moments in 2013 right here in, at Lakeside Church in Folsom. We have defining moments. Some of you guys have those individually in your lives. I had one when I was 39 years old. I'm not going to tell you about that one. That was the last huge defining moment in my life about six years ago. But I want to tell you about one that I had when I was just 21. When I was 21 years old, I had the chance to go with 17 other others over to the Philippines. I had been over there already, and I would played basketball for a summer over there. And I went over again, and I served underneath the leadership of a Filipino pastor that was leading a church there. It was a church that we had partnered with. And there were some college students, and I kind of did an internship there for the summer. And I spent some time leading some Bible studies, you know, working with him in in, in the church there. And one of the things that I did was I went out on a high school and college campus, and I worked with Christian athletes and other people doing Bible studies and kind of just reaching out to the other students on the campus. And I met a student that summer named Richard. And I have to tell you, Richard was a 17-year-old, um, and uh, he's a, he ended up being a great guy, but I didn't like him at first. You know, just to be honest. See, I have this thing that's a bubble around me. It's called my personal space. And Richard didn't have any personal space. He didn't recognize the bubble. And you don't just enter the bubble. You have to be invited into the bubble. And I never did that, but he would just go right in there. And if you've never been to Southeast Asia, it's hot, it's humid. And our particular area, it was pretty dirty, and there was a lot of smog. And so you felt sticky all the time with dirt all over you. And so he would just put his arm around me. Hey, Kuya, Sean. And Kuya means brother. And he's like, hey, man. And I was like, oh, get this guy away from me. I mean, I, didn't, I did not have a good attitude about it. And so one day, in my bad attitude, I'm having a Bible study. And uh, we're going through the Gospel of Mark, you know, sharing stories about how Jesus was interacting with people. And I just sort of said, does anybody want to give their life to Jesus? And to my surprise, Richard said, I do. And I thought, What? You do? You understand this? What's going on here? And I said, okay, well, let's pray. And we finished praying, and he looked up at me, and his eyes were filled with tears. Richard was a really good guitar player. The very next weekend in church, he was sitting in with a band, just playing. You know, I'm like, wow, way to get involved right away. This is amazing. And Richard and I developed this friendship where we would spend time together every single day, and we would look at the scriptures, and we would pray together. And I got to know him, and one day Richard asked, would I go to his house? And I didn't want to go to his house. I have this attitude problem still. And uh, I had to travel an hour and a half to get there. And you have to ride different types of transportation, a tricycle, a jeepney, a bus. You have to get on another jeepney, go on another tricycle, and you have to walk. And finally, I decided out of the encouragement of the pastor and some team leaders, would you just go with him, go to his house and meet his family? So I said, okay. So we get there to his neighborhood, and we're walking down the street. And back then, I think in the news in the late 80s, there was a lot of uh, talk about uh, Bosnia and how there was, you know, the war over there and all of that. And I remember seeing pictures on the news of bombed out buildings. And this is what his neighborhood looked like it looked like it had been bombed. I mean, it was just rubble, it was in shambles. And we went to this one apartment building, and it was about three stories high. And there were no doors, there was no windows, just kind of sheets covering things. And he pulls me really close to him and he says, you need to stay close to me in this neighborhood. And I thought, and he was a small guy. He was like, okay, I'm gonna stay close to you. And we walked up three flights of stairs and we pulled the curtain back to his apartment. And when we walked in, I looked to the right and there was a spread of food there that was just unbelievable. And I was completely humbled because I knew that they were doing this for me. And I thought, how in the world did they pay for all this? And then I looked to my left, and the apartment was packed with people. I almost had to take a step back. About 20 people packed into this little apartment, and the oldest one, his grandmother, stood up, and believe it or not, she looks at me and she says, tell us about Jesus. Jesus. What? Does this stuff really happen? I thought, okay. And for the next hour and a half, I kind of just, you know, bumbled my way through what I knew about the gospel, and I shared my story, and we ate together, and we smiled, and we laughed, and at the end, we prayed together, and I just said, does anybody want to give their lives to Jesus? And to my surprise, 10 of them did. And one of those was his uncle, and he stood up and he said, tomorrow you're coming to my house. (laughs) And so we did, and I actually took some friends with me, and there were about 20 people there, and about 10 of them received Christ. And apparently his uncle was even a better musician because he was in the band rocking and rolling on the piano. And I thought, man, you guys are just going for it right away. This is amazing. That experience for me was shaping in my life. It was a defining moment for me because for the first time, I experienced what I had heard other people talk about, And the fact is, is that I finally, it finally started to dawn on me that I had a significant role to play in this story that God was writing. And I was completely humbled by it because I didn't even like Richard at first, and I didn't even want to go to his house. And I didn't know what to share with them other than my story and the fact that Jesus loves them, that he died and he rose again, and he wants to have a relationship with them. And God began to work, and he does what he does. And it was that moment, and there's been hundreds of other far less spectacular moments in my life where God has revealed to me again and again and again what the Apostle John wrote about when he said, for God so loved the world. Do you know that God loves you tonight? I mean, do you know that He absolutely loves you, that He's invited you into this relationship with Him and that He he accepts you just as you are, not as you will be, because none of us are as we will be. But He accepts you and then He beckons you to die and He wants to shape and transform your life. He wants to give you a new life. Do you realize how much He loves you? Do you know that God's plan, His passionate desire, is to love the world through you. You know, if we don't get anything out of this series through the book of Acts, if we only walk away with one nugget of truth, I hope that it's that we are compelled to participate in what God is doing, that his desire, his plan is to love the world through his church. Now, he can do it any way he wants, and he does amazing things, and I believe that, but primarily, The way that he is showing himself to the world is through his church. As we live out this story that we see in the scriptures and improvise with him. And so I want you to catch on to this. I want you to be ignited in this journey that you're on. If you have your Bible tonight, I want to encourage you to open to Acts chapter 10 as we've been looking through this. And last week we were in Acts chapter 2 and a lot has happened since then. We started this series in Acts chapter 1 when Jesus was talking to his followers and he said, wait in Jerusalem because you're going to receive some power. You're going to receive some leadership. You're going to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, my presence within you individually and communally. And you're going to go out and you're going to tell people about my love. All around the world. And so they did. And they waited. And it happened. And then the church starts to grow. And we see them sharing with one another. Amazing things happen. There's unity within the church. There's a good reputation from without the church. And some of the leaders start to to encounter opposition. Peter and John get put in jail. They're beaten. But the people are praying, they're on their knees. And they continue to grow Day after day after day. Not everything's perfect in the early church. In Acts chapter 6, there's problems. There's leadership issues. There's some people who are the least of these. Some of their widows that weren't being cared for. They weren't getting the food that they needed. And people brought it up and they had conversations. And the apostles began to multiply leadership and empower people and give them permission to go out and do ministry. It's not all about the leaders over here doing ministry and everybody else watching. We're all in this together. And so they were learning how to be the church. And then you get to Acts chapter 7. And Stephen comes along, and he's one of those new leaders, and he starts to teach, and he starts to debate, and people get angry, and they pick up rocks, and they throw them at him, and they kill him. And then it says that on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church, and all except the apostles were scattered. They went out. And it says that everywhere they went, they told people about Jesus. And remarkably, Saul, who later became Paul, who leads much of the persecution early on, actually becomes a Jesus follower. I mean, the most least likely person, right? The one who hated Christians, who went and put them in prison, who cast their vote against them. He's the one who becomes most passionate of all. I mean, God will use the most unlikely people. And you may be sitting here tonight going, God can never use me. Guess what? He can. He wants to. And if you allow him, he will. It's phenomenal what happens in the early parts of the book of Acts. And so then the story continues, and it kind of picks up again. And at the end of chapter 9, we see Peter, who's the leader in the church. He goes out, and he starts to visit these different faith communities out there, these different small bands of Christians as the church is forming in different communities and different towns. And he goes out to this one town that's along the coast called Joppa. And this is where we find him in chapter 10. And I'm not going to read all of chapter 10. I'm going to tell you some of the story. But we're going to work our way through the whole chapter. I'll read some of it as well. But what we find is that Peter wants to go up on the roof for a time of prayer. And it happens to be at lunchtime and he's hungry. And he's hungry and he's praying. And I don't know if you've ever fallen asleep while you've been praying. But that happened to Peter too. You know, he's praying away and just falls asleep. But somehow he kind of goes into this trance. He has this vision. And he sees this strange thing happening. This... This uh, sheet, this huge blanket type thing, I always picture a big giant picnic blanket, and it's lowers from heaven, and it's got different types of animals on it. And for him, he sees some of them, oh yeah, those are good animals, I can eat those. And then other animals, he says, oh yeah, those are unclean animals, I can't, I can't eat those. And they're all sort of mixed up on there. Well, God tells him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter's like, no, I can't. I can't eat those unclean animals. He says, I've never eaten something unclean. I've never broken the law. You know, he knew the rules and he was a rule keeper. And just as a side note, one of the reasons why the Hebrew people could not eat certain types of food was because long ago in their history, God pulled them out of Egypt and he started to do something with them and he wanted to mark them out as different among all the different people groups in that area at that time in the ancient Near East. He, and he started to do it in ways that seemed weird to us, strange to us, but they were actually culturally relevant ways at that time. One of the things about deity at that time in the ancient Near East was that they were territorial. They were viewed as territorial. Territorial. And so you would move into, you know, a country, and you had to pay homage to that deity. And then you'd move out into a different country, and you you better pay homage to that deity. And this is sort of the way that people view things, except for that the God who took Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea, sort of symbolically baptizing them, and the God who went into a covenant with Israel at the bottom of Mount Sinai when they said, we will follow you, this God actually claimed to be Lord of all the earth. He claimed to have no boundaries and he wanted to reveal himself to the whole world. And he also claimed to have created the whole universe. And so he began to teach them how to be a little bit different than the nations around them. And so he gave them some moral things that they had to do, some ethical things that they had to do. He gave them some patterns of worship and how to relate to him. And he also chose some cultural things. Some things like what they would wear and even what they would eat. God's desire was for them, this nation called Israel... Not because they deserved it. They were actually the least of all the nations. They were a band of slaves, disorganized. God was organizing them. And so there wasn't anything just extra special about them. If anything, God chose the least, and he said, you know what? I want you to be the, the light of the world. I want you to be a light to the Gentiles, the rest of the world. And I want to shine through you and reveal myself to the whole world. And they weren't always so good at it, just like we're not always so good at it. Jesus called his followers the light of the world as well, and sometimes we fail at that. And so this is a little bit of the backstory here. So you can imagine Peter had a little bit of a knee-jerk reaction and is like, I'm not going to do this, God. Are you kidding me? And so this is where Peter's at. And then God says, don't call anything that I've made unclean. And Peter had to be scratching his head going, What is this all about? Well, right about that time, there's another guy in another town called Caesarea. And Caesarea is about 36 miles north of Joppa. And there's this man named Cornelius. He's a military guy. He's in charge of 100 military men. And he has a vision of his own. An angel comes to him and says, I want you to go get this guy Peter because I have some things that I want to tell you and your family. And so go get him and bring him. And so right about the time that... Peter's having this vision, and he comes down off the roof. The men from Cornelius come, and they meet. And they tell Peter all about the vision. And then Peter begins to improvise with the Spirit of God who says, Go with them. I have to wonder what Peter was thinking on that 36-mile journey. I mean, did he start to go back into the scriptures and go, is this legal? Can I do this? This guy's a Gentile. Should I do this? Did he he remember how Jesus interacted with the woman at the well in Samaria and how they thought that that was weird? Did he remember how Jesus didn't condemn the woman caught in adultery but said, go and sin no more, and he offered her grace? Like, what did he do? Did he remember his own story, how he was sort of this, working-class fisherman that really didn't believe Jesus in the first place, and this amazing miracle took place, and he goes up to Jesus, falls on his knees and says, depart from me, Lord, I am a sinner. Like, what went through his mind on that 36-mile journey? But he ends up there. He finally gets there. And if you look down in chapter 10, I think it's verse 24, we'll pick up a little bit of the story here. In verse 24, it says, The following day he arrived at Caesarea, Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me, and here it's all clicking with Peter, God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? And then Cornelius kind of shares about his journey, his vision. And then down in verse 33, Cornelius says, So I sent for you immediately... And it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. One of the first things that we notice about this story is that both Peter and Cornelius embraced tremendous meekness. I'm still amazed that meekness is something that is in our playbook. We have a whole banner for it right there. One of the things that we say, our playbook, if you're new to Lakeside, is sort of our DNA. It's our ethos. It's what we want to shoot for. And one of the questions we say is, how do we live? And the way that we answer it is, we love meekness. I mean, it's, 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 it's amazing to me because we live in a world where meekness is misunderstood. It's usually called weakness, but it actually means to have power under submission. Picture a horse, powerful horse, with a bit in its mouth. This is power under submission. One of the things that's amazing to me about this narrative is that these two men displayed such amazing meekness. I mean, Cornelius is a military man. He's got power and he's got influence and he's got authority and he's actually a part of the oppression of the nation of Israel. He's occupying Israel. Imagine how you would feel towards people if people rolled the tanks into Folsom and they occupied us. We wouldn't be so happy about that. This is what is going on in Israel. This is like the 30s in Israel, 30s and 40s. And it's not a happy time. In fact, they're going to have some revolts. And by AD 70, there's going to be a war. And the Romans will come in and crush them and tear down the temple. And they're going to flatten Jerusalem. This was not a happy time. It was like a revolutionary type of time. And here's... Cornelius, a man of power and authority, bowing before a Jew... It was unheard of. And then Peter, he was a leader in his own right. I mean, he came from a humble background, but he had been walking with Jesus and he became a leader in the church. He had had powerful things happen in his ministry. He had seen miracles. God had done things through him. God had done things in front of him. And he had stood up in front of thousands and with boldness proclaimed the gospel and thousands had responded. Peter knew what it meant to be a leader. And here he is entering into the home of this person that historically he had pictured, hey, you're on the outside. I shouldn't be entering into a relationship with you. God was breaking down barriers. It was a beautiful thing. I sometimes think we don't get the cultural, the political, the social significance of what's going on here. I think we, have, we sort of have to think about it. It's sort of like those people that are way, way on the left-hand political spectrum in our country, kind of hobnobbing and hanging out with those that are way, way on the right-hand uh, spectrum. It's sort of like somebody in a democracy hanging out with people that are all about communism or 49ers hanging out with Raider fans. I mean, I don't know. You know, we, we kind of have to figure it out. I actually think one, of the best examples for us is that we have to go back to our history lesson in high school and we have to think about a place like germany in the 30s and 40s and what was going on there there's a phenomenal movie that came out 20 years ago and won the academy award called schindler's list and it was all about oscar schindler he was a selfish man he was a war profiteer He was somebody that was a part of the Nazi party and he wanted to do anything he could to make money. And so he hobnobbed and he used Jewish people because he had to pay them less to make money. And he started living high on the hog until one day he saw a massacre in the Jewish ghetto. And it changed him. It was a defining moment for him. And instead of using Jews, he started to save the lives of Jews, saving over 12 Jews. In fact, there's a little tree that's planted outside of the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem in his, on, in his honor. I think it's called, uh, the trees are called like the, the trees of the righteous or something like that. At the very end of the movie, he says goodbye to all those that he helped save, and he has this little interaction, and we wanted to show you a clip tonight, so check this out.
0: As Hebrew from the Talmud, it says, whoever saves one life saves the world entire. I made more money. <laughs> I threw away so much money. <laughs> you have no idea <laughs> if I just... there will be generations because of what you did. I didn't do enough. You did so much. did I keep the car ten people right there ten people ten more people this pin two people this is gold two more people it would have given me two it. at least one it would have given me one one more, one more person, person stand for this. I could have got one more person than I did, and I didn't. And I didn't. <laughs>
1: he had a lot of power but it was under submission to this vision that he had to save lives I'm amazed at the meekness more than anything else the story of the gospel is a story of love but not just any kind of love it's extravagant love it's pour out on you love It's spend, spend, spend love. It's Jesus on the cross, extravagant love. But extravagant love requires meekness. It requires us to be in a position where we can share that love with others, to have God work through us. Extravagant love. Next, Cornelius in this story and Peter, they get acquainted and they tell one another what God has shown them, and then in verse 34, it says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. I'm always amazed at this passage that it says that I now realize. I mean, Peter's walked with Jesus for three years, right? And then he's been on this leadership journey for at least five years, maybe even ten years at this point, but it's about a decade, give or take, that he's been doing this journey and it says, I now realize. One of the reasons why I think we struggle to improvise with God, to recognize the movements of the Spirit and get on board is because oftentimes we forget to keep growing and learning to kind of be lifelong learners. And one of the reasons why we don't keep growing and learning is because sometimes we're not as open as we used to be to the things that God wants to do in us and through us. We forget to pray for them and work for them and hope for them. And we still love Jesus. We're still trying to do good things, but sometimes it just all gets a little boring and we wonder what happened to the abundant life that I experienced before. Peter finds himself here in a situation where he's having to follow Jesus in some really uncomfortable but also exciting and amazing ways. And one of the lessons here for us is to be open what God may want to show you. Extravagant love requires meekness, but it also requires openness. And really, that's how this journey just starts. That's how it all sort of begins. Look down in verse 36. Peter continues on, and he says, you know the message God God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of Jesus, or the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. And so what Peter does here is he points something out that was actually very offensive in that day. He says that the Jewish Messiah, his Messiah, is actually Lord of all. Everyone needs Jesus. It was offensive back then, it's offensive now. When we say Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, we realize what kind of statement that is in our day and age. But Peter does it anyway, and to say this was offensive to Cornelius, but we start to see how Cornelius began to humble himself and be open to the message of Jesus. And one of the questions for us is are we simply open? Not do we have it all nailed down and sort of this watertight argument with things, but are we open to what God may want to do in us and through us as well? In verse 37, Peter continues, he says, You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, and so that was sort of the beginning of Jesus' ministry, John the Baptist, and then how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, with the Holy Spirit and power and how we, he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. In other words, they knew the story. They had heard the story. People were talking about the story. But now Peter gets personal because the gospel will always get personal with us. And he starts to share some of his own story. In verse 39, it says, We are witnesses of everything that he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging, by hanging him on a cross. And so he, now he begins to share the essential gospel. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people but by witnesses whom God had already chosen by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as as judge over the living and the dead. He is indeed Lord of all the earth. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Everyone. And I can almost picture Peter, looking up at Cornelius and his family and saying, this includes you. And Jesus says the same to us. This includes you, Lakeside. This includes you who are searching and seeking through this whole God thing, this whole spiritual journey that you're on. See, to improv- improvise with the Holy Spirit requires that we trust the Spirit, to do His job. My job is not to convert people. That's not what I'm about. My job and my calling is to love people. This is what the church is about. We speak about Jesus. Jesus came in fullness of truth and grace, so we do the best that we can to share what we believe is true, bathed in grace, and we love people. Let the Holy Spirit do what the Holy Spirit jo- does. His job is to change hearts. And he will do it, and I don't know when he does it or how he does it, but he just does it. And it's an amazing thing. And so, in other words, extravagant love requires trust. We need meekness, we need openness, but we also need to walk in trust. In verse 44, it says while Peter was still speaking these words the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message the circumcised believers or the Jewish Christians who had who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles for they heard them speaking in different languages or the Bible says tongues and praising God And so what we see happening back in chapter 2 with the early Jewish Christians, the leaders of the church, when the Spirit of God is poured out on them, the same thing that happened in Acts chapter 8 with the Samaritans is now spreading. And we see it happening here in Acts chapter 10 with the Gentiles, with these Roman military people and this military family. And the story goes on one life at a time. The Spirit pushes it forward and God uses people to help carry on the story of grace and of love. Finally, the story ends up in verse 47 and 48. Peter says, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And so he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And this is still happening today. We're going to have about 40 people be baptized tomorrow. And it is phenomenal. I have to tell you that probably the most amazing thing that I get to do in life is baptize somebody. I like doing that more than anything else because it is something that says to me, God is still at work. God is still transforming people. And whenever I get discouraged and whenever I wonder, what is this all about? What's going on, God? Are you using me? Are you using this church? What's happening? I think about baptisms. I go to the baptisms. I encourage you to be there. It is one of the ways we know, man, God is working in people's lives. The mission of transformation is happening, and it is an amazing thing. I get so excited about baptism. We get to see people identify with Jesus, go down into the water and say, I am going to live for you. It's an amazing thing. I want to encourage you to be there. Extravagant love. This is the story that God is writing. Extravagant love. Do you know he loves you? Do, we know, do you know that he wants to love the world through you? Let's pray tonight. Father, thanks tonight for your amazing love and the way that you have been unfolding it from the beginning of time god i know that i often miss it i often miss the movements of your spirit in my world and god that's why it's helpful to come back to the scriptures to be reminded to be in community and to dialogue and to journey through these things together god to be encouraged that you are at work and to know that you are a powerful god and the whole world needs you lord jesus and so we pray for that we hope for that and we work for that God, may we be the type of community that you are able to work through in amazing ways in this region so that we can give hope and love to our neighbors around us. Thanks for that, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray, amen.